Let's turn again in our Bibles to the book of Galatians as we continue our Sunday evening series, Study in the Book, and we come to chapter 1, 11 through 24. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his word, Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 11 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And while I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie." Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown to persons in the churches of Judea, in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Now, of course, this book of Galatians is a letter, and so we're coming to some sections in which there is autobiography in the first chapter here, and also in the next section in chapter 2, you will find many autobiographical references, and some of these things may seem somewhat tedious. Um, What we have to do, of course, is to understand why these things are here. What is Paul saying to us? Now, let's remember that the letter to the Galatians was written by Paul the Apostle, I believe, before the Council of Jerusalem. Probably it was his earliest letter, though some think it might be 1 Thessalonians. As he is writing to the churches, he finds that they are deserting to a man, it seems, the gospel that he had preached. And he tells them, if you do that, you are forsaking the gospel of grace by which you are saved. There is no other gospel by which you can be saved than the gospel which I preach to you, says Paul the Apostle. Let me remind you that in Romans 11, verse 6, the apostle says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In that verse, the apostle says, It is either by grace or by works. The two cannot be mingled. And I think that verse summarizes well what the whole book of Galatians is about as they are attempting to mingle works and grace. Oh, yes, they would say, We believe the gospel of Paul. We believe in salvation by grace. But we need to add these things that the Judaizers, the false teachers, are telling us to add. The Apostle Paul, you remember from the last time we were in Galatians, says that if anyone preach any other gospel than the one that he preached, that that one should be anathema esto. He should be considered to be under the curse of God. And he even included himself. If an angel from heaven, or if we, if Paul himself, were to preach such a false gospel, 
then he also, and that angel, would be deserving of damnation. Why? Because this is such a serious matter. Because the Apostle Paul realizes that this is the gospel by which men and women and children are saved, and there is no other gospel but this gospel. Now in these verses, Paul then stresses the divine origin of the gospel and its glorious character, and he's always stressing grace. It's always about grace, 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 salvation by grace. Now let's begin looking at this passage by seeing, first of all, that Paul's gospel was not of human origin. Paul's gospel was not of human origin. And so he says in verses 11 and 12, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the apostle says, The gospel that I preached was not contrived by man in any way. Man did not conceive it. Man did not come up with it, did not manipulate it, uh, did not bring it to bear on Paul's life. The Galatians should have known that Paul's gospel, which he had preached to them, was not of human origin and therefore was not to be tampered with. Paul is always concerned with the downward movement of grace. He reminds them of the fundamentals, and notice how strongly the Apostle Paul puts this. He says the gospel was a result that came to him of revelation, revelation. He speaks of his own past. He unfolds his personal history. He did not apprehend the gospel because of his personal giftedness. The Apostle Paul did not apprehend the gospel because of his early environment. He did not apprehend the gospel, apprehend the gospel because he was a brilliant man, though he was. He did not apprehend the gospel because he studied under Gamaliel and was a great rabbi. No, no, it came by revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying again in verses 11 and 12 what we saw that he said in the very opening of his epistle in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He is emphasizing, underscoring, that this gospel that he preaches came to him by sheer, utter revelation. Everything is determined by the appearance of the resurrected Christ to Paul on the Damascus road. Now listen, Paul is saying, I am uniquely qualified to be heard about this gospel over the din of the false teachers and all of their confusion and twisting of the truth, those who deny the gospel. I am uniquely qualified to be heard because that gospel was revealed to me by the risen Christ. Now, you and I will not have the same experience as did Paul the Apostle. The Apostle Paul was called to be an apostle after all. It was necessary that he see the risen Christ with his very eyes in order to be called to this grace of apostleship. But nonetheless, this gospel comes to us also by means of the record left to us by the apostles by divine inspiration. By this whole Bible, this word of God, this gospel comes to you as well and saves us just as it did Paul the Apostle on the Damascus Road. Yes, there is a redemptive historical difference between ourselves and Paul, but it's the same gospel revealed to Paul that continues to save sinners today. And that means that Paul's concern about false teachers, twisting the gospel, perverting the gospel of truth, should be just as much a concern to us in the church as it was to Paul the Apostle. Now remember what I was like before this revelation 
from Christ came to me. So we see, secondly, Paul's life before grace. Paul's life before grace. And he says in verses 13 and 14, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He speaks of anastrophe, his conduct, which actually means ethical conduct. This is how I viewed life. This was my worldview. This is how I walked in this world before Jesus Christ came to me and showed himself to me on the Damascus Road. And my life was antithetical to the gospel. He persecuted the church of God. The way I translated this when I translated Galatians from the Greek text is, he persecuted the church of God off the scale and tried my hardest to annihilate it. It was the closest I could come to what Paul was really after in the original. Paul hated the gospel. He despised Jesus Christ. He hated the church of Jesus Christ. His persecuting activity was kat hupor bolain. It was exceeding. It was excessive. It was extraordinary. It was fierce. It was savage. It was violent. It's very difficult to know how to translate, and so I translated off the scale. It was as bad as it could be. It was terrible. Now, Machen points out that the very point of the allusion to his past persecution of the church is the suddenness of his conversion. There, the Apostle Paul, we have this romantic view of Paul sometimes. We think that the Apostle Paul was somehow gradually coming to the Christian faith, that he was becoming uh, convicted of his sin, and, and then he met the, the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. No, no, everything we know about Paul tells us the, the opposite. The Apostle Paul was not gradually coming to Jesus Christ. He was going farther and farther away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, persecuting the church of God with all of his might. It was a sudden conversion on the Damascus Road. And so the gospel came to him without human intermediation, without any preparation whatsoever. And Paul thought he was doing God a service by attempting to annihilate Christians and wipe the church off the face of the globe. Then Christ revealed himself to Paul on the Damascus Road as the risen Lord. So he speaks of his manner of life as he talks about what he was like before grace. But not only was his persecuting activity off the scale, but Paul's Pharisaic zeal and commitment surpassed even the, the, the most zealous of his countrymen. He was committed to the traditions of his fathers, and he was hyper, hyper, hyper committed to the traditions of his fathers. The verbs here in this, in this section, in which he speaks of his commitment to, uh, to his ancestral traditions and the persecuting activity of the church, are imperfects. As you, you, if, if you read the Greek text, you see all these imperfects that begin to fall out all over the page. And what that probably indicates is that there was a progressive process of destruction in his own life and of destruction of the church of God. He was getting worse and worse and worse. And Paul vehemently tried to annihilate the church and zealously progressed in the ancestral traditions of his fathers. Now, there's vivid language here. Have you noticed it as you've read it? This vivid language. He uses these sorts of words. Persecute. Destroy. 
make havoc of, annihilate. He uses the comparative adverb exceedingly zealous. Racy, militant words to describe his love and attachment to a life of works righteousness. The Apostle Paul was loving the persons and the system that were doing him the most harm. You see what Paul is doing here? He's not simply reflecting on his past. He's reflecting on his past with a purpose. He's glorying in the gospel. He's announcing the triumph of sovereign grace is over against the works righteousness that are taught by his opponents. He was once like them, and now he can speak, having seen Christ as one who knows that that system is destructive of the soul. And Paul could never get over what God in his grace had done for him by, by the revelation of the gospel. He could never get over how, by grace, all the difference had been made in his life. He was amazed to find himself a Christian. He was amazed to find himself an apostle. He was amazed to find himself a preacher of the sovereign free grace of God. And now he sees everything through the lens of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so Pauline autobiography in this passage is here to demonstrate the nature of the gospel, how glorious it is, how great it is, how wondrous and transforming it is. And then we move to a third thing, and we see this intervention of grace, intervention of grace. Now, this is verses 15 through 23. Now, he begins with the sovereignty of grace, the sovereignty of grace, the absolute sovereignty of God in saving him. And he begins in verse 15 with these words, but when, but when. This is what I was like. This is now what I am like. There is this turning point, this turning point on the Damascus road when I saw Jesus, but when. Calvin says, a hand stretches down from above. <laughs> That's what he's saying. This hand stretched down from above, but when. And in sovereign freedom, God showed his divine grace to this man who once had been bound by Pharisaic tradition. And Paul glories in the gospel. What a contrast to the Judaizers who are boasting in the flesh. Paul here is boasting in the good news of Jesus Christ. You see the language of grace in these verses? He says, when it pleased God, look here at verse 15, but when, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. He was pleased. God was pleased. This is the language of the sovereignty of grace. This is the language of God's election. And he revealed his son in me. Paul came to understand who Jesus was and he is the one, he says in this passage, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Now, the Apostle Paul is alluding to an Old Testament text when he says that he separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. You know the text is Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, when Jeremiah the prophet says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And just as God had predetermined that he would save Jeremiah and give him this message to preach, so the Apostle Paul says, I now am that prophet, predestined by God to be saved from my sins by the sovereign free grace of God, and now I preach this message. F.F. F. Bruce points out 
he cites Isaiah 49 and reminds us how in Acts 13.47, Paul identifies himself with the servant's mission, the suffering servant's mission to take the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. Now that's grace, isn't it? Here is this man who was exceedingly zealous of his ancestral traditions, who did everything that he could to persecute the church of God, and now he sees himself in continuity with the suffering servant of Jehovah in the Old Testament as preaching that gospel and taking that gospel to the nations. That's grace. That is really sovereign grace. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. He separated the Apostle Paul. That's the verb he uses, separate. God's determination in his own counsels before Paul was born. He was separated out by the counsels of God for salvation and to be a preacher of the grace of God. Now, that's a very interesting word that he uses, this word separate, because the root of the word Pharisee is the word separate. Do you see what Paul is doing? He is saying, no longer am I part of the separated ones, the Pharisees, lost in their own works righteousness. I've been separated by grace. I am a separated one, but not a Pharisee. I am a separated one by the grace of God, proclaiming the truth as it is in Jesus. Paul is separated in a different sense, standing in opposition to that tradition, that Jewish tradition now in Christ. And so as he speaks of the intervention of grace, he talks about the sovereignty of grace, this hand that stretches down from above, indeed from eternity past, to save him. But he also speaks of his independence from others. In verses 16 and 17, Paul puts it this way. God was pleased to reveal His Son to me, or perhaps in me, might be the better translation, in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And so in these two verses, Paul is saying he did not derive either his commission or his understanding of the gospel from anyone, not even from the apostles. And when he speaks of this time in Arabia, Arabia here means the region surrounding Damascus. When we think of Arabia, we think of the Arabian Peninsula. Arabia in the ancient world included these regions that were surrounded Damascus, the the kingdom of the Nabataeans. This was called Arabia. The point here is simply that it was not Jerusalem. He was converted. He went somewhere other than Jerusalem. Why is he saying that? Because he wasn't exposed to the apostles. He didn't get his gospel from them. He received his gospel directly from the risen Lord. New Testament scholar Suyon Kim has shown that Paul's visit to Arabia should be viewed as an almost immediate application of Isaiah chapter 42. To Paul's call to serve Christ as an apostle. There in Isaiah 42, the servant of the Lord, the Ebed, is called to bear light and salvation to the Gentiles and leads the inhabitants of Kedar and Selah to sing the praises of God. Now, the interesting thing about that is that that area, geographically, is the very area to which Paul the Apostle is referring in these verses. So his first missionary attempt is an application of Isaiah chapter 42 to his life. And that means that Paul understood his calling as an apostle right from the start. 
Paul interpreted his Damascus Road experience in light of Isaiah 42 and that the servant fulfills his role through Paul to take the gospel to the nations. Do you see, Paul's entire gospel is not something that's developing over time. He understood the gospel right from the start. And what he writes in his epistles, he understood right from the start when he met the risen Lord. So Paul's gospel is an unfolding of what happened to him on the Damascus road. He learned it from no one but the risen Lord. And then he says, after three years, verse 18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Paul's purpose in visiting Cephas, and then only, only three years after his conversion was to make Cephas acquaintance. He visited him only 15 days. He did not see the other apostles. He only saw James, the Lord's brother. And it must be a very important thing because the apostle Paul takes an oath here. Did you notice? I swear to God, I am not lying about the things I am writing to you, he says. Paul then rounds out the recital of his itinerary. Next, I went into the region of Syria, Cilicia. If you have your Bible, you might want to write Syria, Cilicia. Because the Apostle Paul, the conqueror for the gospel, uses Roman provincial names because it is his calling to evangelize the empire. Paul's simple but important point in this autobiography can be missed by us if we're not careful. Paul is saying these regions are not Jerusalem. Paul's gospel was not dependent upon the apostles, was not dependent upon believers in Jerusalem. And he stresses that point. And he had not even attended worship services of the churches in Judea. You see verse 22. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. By the way, a wonderful thing, isn't it? That he refers to those who are in Christ, who are members of those churches, because of their new identity in Jesus. Now again, why is he stressing this? We read these details and we say, what is this all about? Why is he giving a travelogue? (laughs) Why is he giving to us these autobiographical details? Paul's main point has been that his gospel is not according to man. His insistence on the work of grace, upon the divine initiative, and the fact that he consulted with no one, he is stressing the sovereignty of grace over against the works righteousness of the Judaizers. So here's his point. In Paul's mission to the Gentiles... If his mission stood in need of instruction and confirmation by leaders in Jerusalem, there might be some handle for the false teachers to say, Paul's gospel also now needs more supplementing. It needed supplementing when he went up to Jerusalem and there he learned all of this from the apostles. Well, he needs to learn some more too and so do you. It needs supplementing. Paul the apostle says no. My gospel and mission are received by divine revelation. The gospel that I preached is in need of no supplement of any kind, not from anyone at any time, from anywhere. The Judaizers are wrong, and you had better listen to what I'm saying when I preach the gospel to you. Because this gospel came to me directly from the hand of the risen Lord. That's Paul's point in this travelogue. 
And that goes for us as well. If the Judaizers had better listen and the Galatians had better listen, then you and I had better listen also. The gospel is in no need of supplementing. It needs nothing to be added to it. Paul's point is in continuity with what he said in verses 11 and 12 when he opened in this text. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It therefore needs nothing to be added to it. It needs no supplement ever. And then the Apostle Paul speaks in this section of the power of a transformed life. Look at verses 23 and 24. Speaking of those in Judea who are in Christ, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Paul concludes this segment of his argument for salvation by grace by reflecting on how the Jewish believers of Judea, who come to know Jesus, responded to the news of his conversion. They heard that Jesus had saved the one who had attempted to wipe them out and destroy them. And they, again, it's an imperfect, they continually praised God because of me. The imperfect tense probably implies a continual stream of praise. And they were amazed by the grace of God. Who had Paul been, after all? A Jew earnestly practicing his faith, hating Christ, hating Christ's church, a hyper-persecutor of the people of God. Undoubtedly, he felt himself secure when persecuting Christians. The righteousness of the moralist is secure when it persecutes the message of free grace because the heart hates the message of grace. Paul was so zealous in this that he continually progressed in destroying Christians in the Jewish way of life. And by advancing in his ancestral traditions, Paul was superlative in works of the law. But where did it get him? Well, keep your finger here and turn to the book of Philippians. Let's remember how Paul puts it in another place. Where did it get him? Did he find peace of conscience there? Did he find that all of this superlative work in the law actually could save his soul from sin. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul says in verse 2 and following, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, By the way, Paul wasn't politically correct when he talked about uh, heretics, was he? For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And you see the two references to flesh there are talking about, they're hardly veiled references to circumcision. Then he goes on in verse 4 and he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Look at this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which, that is to say, that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. No, no. No, no. As George Ladd put it, he was converted from one understanding of righteousness to another, from his own righteousness of works to God's righteousness by faith. Now, I think that actually puts it mildly. The gospel is something totally other than human tradition, totally other than human religion. No one could have invented the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do you understand? Do you see why this passage is important to the church today? The gospel is something totally other than human religion. Self-salvation is the name of the game outside of Christ. It may be overt works, it may be a philosophy of life, but it's self-salvation, self-salvation, works of law, if you will. That's the name of the game for those people who are outside of Christ. That was the name of the game for me before Jesus brought me to himself. And it was for Paul and it is for all of those who are outside of Jesus. When I think of this passage, I usually think of a, uh, a reference that is made by Alistair McGrath in a book he wrote on Luther uh, to uh, a man whose name was Contarini. Now, the reason I, I'm interested in this, and by the way, let me add that I believe that what Paul the Apostle says about these things in Galatians and Romans and Philippians and throughout his epistles are applicable to what the Reformers saw in Rome in their day, just as they are applicable to the works righteousness systems that we see in our day. Contarini, who is corresponding with Paolo Guistiniani in 1511, all right, this is prior to Luther and the Theses. It is prior to Calvin. This is pre-Reformation. And his friends are going off into the monastery in order that they might atone for their sins. He's corresponding with his friend. And Contarini says, look, if, if you guys don't, don't know that your sins are atoned for and you withdrawn from the world, then how in the world can I be saved when I remain in it? And then somehow, somehow, he began to understand the gospel. This medieval man began to understand Jesus and his gospel. Contarini, says McGrath, had now resolved his dilemma. In his mercy, God had permitted his only son, Jesus Christ, to make satisfaction for the sins of the world, so that in Contarini's words, here are his words, even if I did all the penances, pos penances possible, and many more besides, they would not be enough to atone for my past sins let alone to merit salvation, Christ's passion. And you know what passion means? His sufferings. Christ's passion is sufficient and more than sufficient as a satisfaction for sins committed to which human weakness is prone. Through his thought, I changed, says Contarini, from great fear and anguish to happiness. I began to turn with my whole heart to this greatest good which I saw for love of me on the cross. His arms open and his breast opened right up to his heart. 
Thus I, the wretch who lacked the courage to leave the world and do penance for the satisfaction of my sins, turned to him and asked him to allow me to share in the satisfaction which he, the sinless one, had performed for us. He was quick to accept me and to permit his father to totally cancel the debt which I had contracted and which I was incapable of satisfying by myself. Now, since I have such a one to pay my debt, shall I not sleep securely in the midst of the city, even though I have not satisfied the debt which I had contracted? Yes, I shall sleep and wake up as securely as if I had spent my entire life in the hermitage. Well, this man was converted. He understood the righteousness of Christ. And so it is essential to keep a right focus here in Christian living because the ground of our assurance of faith is not different than the ground of our salvation. And there is only one ground of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ and his finished, completed work on the cross. Why is the message of Galatians so essential for the Christian? Because it insists on Christ alone. And don't tell me you don't get that, because every week, in one way or another, you are tempted to go away from Christ alone. Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone. As Adolf Monod said, there is no peace for the man who takes his point of departure from within himself. Now, if you don't mind my reading something that I wrote, after some fairly tight exegetical work, I hope, I concluded this section by saying this. I reference Albert Schweitzer and Karl Barth. Now, Karl Barth's theology is really messed up, but he had a right observation here. You know, people who have messed up thinking sometimes have right observations. Albert Schweitzer, the well-known philosopher, physician, and humanitarian at the age of 21, decided he would spend nine years studying medicine, music, and theology, and then devote his life to humanitarian service. He established a hospital in French Equatorial Africa, which he expected to include a leper colony. His view of Christ was anything but Paul's. When Karl Barth met Schweitzer, he told him in a friendly way that his views were a fine specimen of righteousness by works. Barth was right about this. We can do the works of a Mother Teresa, but it will not make us right with God. The conversion that Paul so desperately needed and that all moralists need was a conversion from one view of righteousness to another. More than that, Paul's shift was from one understanding of his source of righteousness, that which is from law-keeping to total reliance upon the merit of Christ. When the Jewish Christians of Judea saw that Paul had moved from egocentricity to Christocentricity, that he had been called by grace that God had called and commissioned him to preach the gospel, that he was transformed from opposing Christ to depending upon Christ, they could not help continually praising God. His preaching and life showed a change of relationship with God. And those of us who have come to know him can only say, praise him, praise him.